Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is X Job Downloaded. And today we're going to interview author Jonathan Nicholas. Jonathan, I've read some of your um, your stuff. Born in Norfolk, moved around the world, ended up in Nottinghamshire. I think that that's, that's it in a nutshell, but it's far more interesting than that. Yeah, well, um, the, the police journey started really in 1976 when I, I was uh, living in Sheffield. I grew up in Sheffield and I fancied... Uh, a bit of variety. So I went down to Snig Hill Police Headquarters in Sheffield, South Yorkshire Police, uh, to join as a cadet. And uh, they showed us a film of um, somebody getting stabbed and fighting in the street and lots of blood and guts. And uh, they they interviewed me briefly. And then because I grew up in, in what was sort of poshest, posh end of Sheffield, um, they told me to go away and come back when I when I'd seen a bit of life. Um, even though you could join the police police at sixteen as a as a cadet, um, I didn't seem to be the sort of material they wanted. So um, I got my A levels, and then I went abroad for on and off for five years, hitchhiking and and working hand to mouth for. For, uh, for anything I could. I, I lived in the Middle East for 18 months um, and then I went to Australia and uh, got a job selling stuff door to door and for a while I, I, I lived for six weeks, I lived as a vagrant travelling around <laughs> Australia. That was quite insightful actually. Um, but I was, it's ironic that I was quite happy. I had nothing other than a change of underpants and a diary uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, but I was I was happy. That, that was quite bizarre at the time. Uh, then I went to New Zealand. Uh, I did some time in France, and I worked as a labourer in Germany, uh, like Alfie the same pet. But it wasn't a building site. It was uh, a Baumschulen, which is a load of muddy fields where they grow trees. And your job is to dig the bloody things up when somebody wants a tree. <laughs> and I remember when it when it first started raining, I started walking off, and, and the, the German fellow says, "Was machen Sie?" Um, and I said, "Well, I'm, I'm going. It's raining." Arbeit, Arbeit. And I thought, "Oh my God!" I just stand there digging in the rain. It was awful. Uh, but that was that was great practice for fixed point duty in the police when yeah, it started raining. <laughs> so I mean, you you. Um... You've done Bondi Beach. You did all the things. What? What? Where were you in the Middle East? Um, I've worked on a, on two different kibbutz in Israel. I'd never heard of Israel, and I'm not Jewish or anything. But my my elder cousin, Andy, when we were just seventeen, uh, almost eighteen, he said, "Why don't we go to a kibbutz?" And I said, "I've never heard of the place. What is it?" And he said, "Oh, it's you, you, it's a collective farm in Israel, and you 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 work, and you don't get paid, but you get sun sunshine and." all this sort of thing, great life experience. I, I thought, well, I'm not particularly interested, but I'll go if you're going. Um, and then a few weeks before, we'd, everything was booked. He didn't go. He went to university instead. <laughs> and so I right, okay. So I flew out there on my own, uh, and I got a bus uh, from Tel Aviv up to uh, northern Israel because the lady in the kibbutz office in Tel Aviv just, just said, well, where would you like to go? The whole map of Israel. And she said, this is a good kibbutz. And it was right on the border with Lebanon and Syria. Wow. And as naive as, as I was at the time, I was only just 18. I thought, yeah, that's all right, in, in the mountains, you know. And, uh, of course, I spent half my time in the air raid shelters because of the PLO rockets and stuff. But it's it just wasn't – when you're 18, you don't fear – like you do when you get a bit older. Oh, no. No. <laughs> it's, it's really weird. Yeah, you're right. I mean, as you get older, you sort of face, you start to face your mortality a bit more. And um, uh, yeah. 
yeah, it was just great fun when we when we were eighteen. I met some great lads from Birmingham and Yorkshire, and and we we just uh, had a great time drinking a lot and uh, sightseeing and stuff. And uh, after six months, I came home, and there was a lot of pressure from my parents to get get a proper job. Uh, so I got a job in uh, Lloyd's Bank in Grantham, and I knew after a week that this is just not for me. There's just nothing happening. Uh, no disrespect to people who've worked in a bank, but, oh, dear, no, it wasn't It wasn't for me. I thought there must be some sort of job out there that uh, that I could do. But I was I was still had the, uh, the itchy uh, travel bug, so I went back to Israel, but I went to a kibbutz near Gaza this time. Right. And we used to bunk under the fence uh, and walk into Gaza City uh, to the beach. Um, all the Israeli soldiers wouldn't let you in at the checkpoints, so we bypassed the checkpoints and went went and chatted with the the locals in in Gaza on the beach and so on. Great time. Uh, and I, I did that for six months. Then I went back. Then I went to Germany and did that's when I did the Baumschulen thing for a summer. And then I went back to the, the Gaza Strip area for another six months. And then I went to Australia for a year. And that's when I lived as a vagrant briefly around. Uh, I hitchhiked from Sydney to Brisbane, up to Townsville, across to Mount Isa, then up to uh, Darwin. And I ran out of everything, food, money, inspiration, and everything in Darwin. And I just literally bumped into this guy I, I'd known briefly in Brisbane a few months before. And we, uh, he was renting a flat there, and he, we went back to his place, and we had uh, Vegemite on toast, and it was <laughs> I'd eaten for three days, and he could see how desperate I was, and um, he he loaned me, well, loaned me twenty dollars, and with that I managed to get all the way back round to Sydney via via Alice Springs, and I got one lift, one hitchhike lift from Alice Springs. All the way to Adelaide it took four days. Oh my life! So, I know the guy. The guy whose car it was. He he slept in the hotel, and I'd got a little tent, and uh, I I slept in my tent in the hotel grounds. It was bizarre. <laughs> then I, I got a lift near Brisbane, and this guy. Uh, I'd gone all the way around Australia and never felt threatened until the very last lift. This guy said uh, it was it was late at night, and he said. Uh, well, you've you've obviously got to uh, stay with me in my room tonight. Haven't you? <laughs> I said, well, right, what do you mean? He said, well, we can have some fun, you know, just me and you. We can have some fun, have some drinks, and and I, I as as the car stopped at the, some traffic lights, I just bailed out. And no offense to anybody, I was quite no, a compliment. No, no. Yeah, you know, I I got skimpy skimpy uh, cut off jeans uh, shorts, and I was so slim in those days. Um, I was ten stone. I'm I'm thirteen and a half now, but um, it was it was an interesting time, and I think it was good for when I joined the police because when I joined Knott's Police in February '84, February the twenty second, nineteen eighty four, everybody remembers yeah, that. Yeah, they do. Um, I, I didn't know what. I'm not sure they wondered what what to make of me at all. They in my. Uh, in my reports, my recruitment report, it said that I was a very independent person. But that's that's maybe so, but it's no no more than anybody else. I was joining with people who'd been in the RN, people who'd been in the Merchant Navy, yeah, no less independent than they were, you know. But your life's experiences are different, and you can bring a lot of those into policing, certainly when you're dealing with people there. But going back to your Australia bit, my son lives in a place called Mission Beach, which if you wow. if you went up through to Cairns, then you'd have, you'd have gone past Mission Beach. Yeah, he lives there. But um, but it is fascinating. And you're talking 1978, there or thereabouts. Um, when I went to Israel, yeah. 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 And, and the world was changing in the UK then. We just, um, we just celebrated the Queen's uh, Jubilee, 25th, yeah. 25 yeah. years. M- music, yeah. music was just totally off the, off the rails because it was, it was just – but when you put it into perspective – the Second World War had only finished 33 years beforehand. Yeah, yeah. So we were yeah. that generation that, you know, we, we, I don't know, it's just things have changed so quickly in such a short space of time. So you've, you've, you've done all your travelling and we're now in, in Nottingham, 1984. You say February 22nd, so we're coming up to the, uh, 
the uh, anniversary. What was that like? Because we were getting into the miners' strike. Nottinghamshire faced a lot of issues around the miners' strike. Yeah, yeah. What was that like, joining the police service then? Well, it was just bubbling up. And when I was at training school, there were – uh, some of the senior officers were saying, well, you're, you're going to be at Clipston, you are. You're, you're going to be sorting them out at Clipston. And I, I hadn't even properly started yet by then. But I, as a new recruit, I was left at Division. And it was a place called Highson Green in Nottingham, which is, uh, to put it in perspective, it's a place where currently there are 200 languages spoken. Wow. Um, it's the inner city of the inner city in Nottingham. And uh, I was parading on uh, six six a.m. six p.m. morning shifts, ten in a row, uh, with my tutor, just my tutor, and we were driving around. Uh, then we'd get um, we'd get one day off, then we'd do ten nights, ten afternoons, and and this this was my introduction to the police service. Wow! Uh, and it went on like that for about ten months. Uh, and occasionally, I was drafted in to do to do the vans, which was what everybody expects. Uh, perhaps I, I, should, I would have been doing the most, but I, I didn't. I did a bit. Of, I did do a bit at Clipston actually. I did some at Harworth. I did some uh, at, in in Worksop. We I remember we, we threw a cordon around Worksop, and we were stood on the A1 exit uh, from the north. Uh, from about three in the morning, turning people away, carloads of, of, of burly-looking men, and I've come to see me. I'm visiting my grandma, and uh, my <laughs> my sons, they're not, they're not, no. the, the, the the pickets, turn them around. So I'm, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm still only ten stone, and as green as grass, and still a bit of a, a tree-hugging hippie, in, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I said, well. Actually, I'm sorry, but you've got to turn around because my sergeant said you've got to turn. Around. <laughs> yeah, I thought, and then on one occasion, I stood in the in the a, on the slip road off the A1 with with the number one hand signal, and and it was a sort of a sort of half-hearted hand, <laughs> and they just drove straight past me, and my inspector just looked at me and shaking his head. So I, I, I had to I had to learn. Um, well, it's it's controlled aggression, really, isn't it? Yeah. I'd, I mean, I'd I'd have five years um, lying on a beach, not doing a great deal, and I was working. I, I worked all everywhere I went. But if I if I saw something I didn't like, a confrontation or any sort of incident I didn't like, I, I could walk away, which is what the public do. But now I was in a uniform, I couldn't walk away. And there's the old joke in the police, isn't it? You just turn your uniform inside out and mingle with the crowd. Um, and that's that's what I wanted to do, but yeah. of course, you can't. And so I had to learn controlled aggression. There was a couple of incidents where there was a section five, and uh, I just sort of let him off. And in fact, in fact, after about three months at division, my sergeant Dave Gresley, who was was a a really ancient looking fellow, he can't have been more than fifty five on reflection, but he looked about ninety, smoked heavily, and. <laughs> And uh, he gave me the right bollocking. He said, "He said if you don't, I won't use the expletives yeah. he used, but if you don't do your job, you may as well take your uniform off and go home." Uh, because I was, I was like, you remember that bit in um, Inspector Clouseau where he watches the bank robbery and he, <laughs> <laughs> he picks money money bag up for the thieves That's to right, make yeah. the drive off. That was me. I was so naive. I was Hilarious. Walking- Area and there must have been crimes happening all over the place, and I, I was so naive and and uh, so that I got that bollocking, and some of my colleagues he, he sh- was shouting so loud in Radford Road Police Station, some of my colleagues must have heard, and one of them came up to me and said, "Why don't you go down the road? There's a there's a rat run down there. Take take an HORT one book and issue a few tickets. That's all you need to do. Just do it a couple of mornings, and they'll start coming in. All the offences will start coming in." And and so I did, and I, I got loads of offences that way. Um, but in those days, you didn't drive the panda cars. No, uh, didn't. I didn't. I didn't drive a panda till I got about four, four or five years service. Yeah. And and that's when your apprenticeship in the police really begins when you when you're in the panda car because you you're the first at the scene, 
usually on your own, uh, day and night, and that's when the, the learning curve just went straight up. Yeah, your decision making improves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I did get a, a bollocking after after Dave Presley gave me that bollocking. I was sent to divisional headquarters, and and the uh, chief superintendent—I can't remember his name now—he said it's not it's not a job for everybody. If there's no change. <laughs> And I, was, I thought, oh shit! I I'm, I'm, and I thought, I, yeah, I can do this job. I can. I, 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 I did get quite hardened as an yeah. individual when I was travelling. Uh, I went uh, three days without anything to eat on when I was in Athens. Uh, so I, I thought, yeah, I can do it. So I, I did learn, and and I ended up doing the thirty years. You know, that's fascinating. It's. It's not a job for everyone. The, you know, the two yeah. superintendents are quite right. But actually, there is a there is a job for everyone because you, really, yeah. you, you need all types of skills in order to undertake the role of policing. Yeah. So when you're you're in Nottinghamshire Police and the, the minor strike and all the things that are going off there, the the relationship between the public and the police is well documented. You know, it wasn't the wasn't most favourable. Right. What was that like living in the community? that you were policing in because there was a massive, massive divide, certainly in Nottinghamshire between the, the, the public and the, and the police service. And there still is in some places. Yeah. Well, at the time, I mean, I, I don't know any of my colleagues, myself included, who lived in the area that they policed. Right. And in fact, there was a sort of an unwritten rule that you don't in Nottinghamshire. And I live eight miles from where I used to police. Uh, and it always struck me as, as a as a writer, because I've always dabbled in writing, that that the UK sort of um, expects all the middle class people from outside the city to come in and police the city and then go home. Yeah. Because um, there was no, I, I couldn't think of anybody that lived actually in where they policed. Wow. And you wouldn't want to live where in Hyson Green, particularly. No. Um, no, because we we got posted in. We weren't allowed to work in the towns in which we lived when I first joined, and we had to go and live in digs. Well, of course, now there are no digs and there are no uh, there's yeah, no housing yeah. allowance, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So where, how did your police service progress? Well, uh, it didn't really, and it, it never did really, I don't think. You surprised me. I mean, you're, you're well-educated. You speak two languages. You've travelled the world. I'm saying to. I'm assuming. Well, you speak three if you include English, but I don't speak. I just I, I dabble with. I, I know a bit of French and German, uh, um, and a tiny bit of Arabic and Hebrew. But that's only because when when you live somewhere, you you, you pick it up, don't you? But yeah. um, no, I, I took my sergeant's exam when I'd got three years service. I think I got forty nine percent, and I didn't bother again. Perhaps I should have done, but. There's, a, there's somebody I joined with who who got 51%, and he went on to be a chief inspector. But it never really interested me. I, I, I um, promotion that is. I, I I always thought I might be a dog dog officer, but then I didn't get a dog. I didn't <laughs> apply. I remember at one time uh, in the 90s there were a lot of um, a lot of shootings, uh, firearm murders. I think we got 36 firearm-related murders in Nottingham. Wow. And uh, I put in a long general report asking for a, a submachine gun and a sidearm <laughs> and a 1,000 rounds of ammunition just to help out, help my colleagues, you know. And I think they just binned it because the, <laughs> the, the, it was from me. I think I got a bit of a reputation as being a bit silly. Uh, <laughs> but because um, when we when we had at Radford Road, the the, the boiler was coal fired because it was an, uh, a Labour council, and we used to get loads of coal left over on the budget. So I suggested that we have to raise morale in the station. We have a um, end of year excess budget. Uh, lottery draw and it was about 2,000 quid left over in wow. the budget and I thought the staff could have a lottery draw just to help frugality and and uh, you know saving energy and so on but that was ignored as well you know, all, the, all these suggestions I've made that uh, <laughs> just got ignored <laughs> Where did you serve most of your time? Well I did the first half in Hyson Green which is which is the multicultural area Yeah. Uh, is in modern parlance is known as a challenging area. Yeah. 
and then the second half at Bestwood, which was, which is north of the nor in the city, but still uh, uh, north of the city, uh, near the Nottingham City Hospital. And I was given part of my beat was was the Nottingham City Hospital, and the other half was what's known as a sink estate in government parlance, where there's there's very high unemployment, high single parents, yeah, uh, low and all this sort of thing. And I found the two areas very very challenging. And at, right at the very start, I could you, when you get a new beat area, and this this is a as a community officer by the way, um, yeah. So the latter half was I was a, a community officer, and you can either approach an area with a little bit of disdain and uh, dispassionate sort of professionalism, or you can approach it in the way I did. And I thought, well, if I was if I was in a village, I'd expect people to know me, and I'd expect to know everybody. Absolutely. Um, because when I when I joined the police, I was living in Retford, and well, a, a little village near Retford. And I expected to be just given a push bike and told to ride around the villages Monday to Friday and every weekend off sort of thing. But they sent me down to Highson Green. So when I got my own little beat area for the first time, I thought, right, OK, let's let's treat this holistically as sort of like a village community. So I've got I've got 800 houses on the estate and I've got 4,000 people who work at hospital during the daytime. So I'd had some uh, cards printed by the force, uh, and they gave us, uh, Knox gave us, I don't know whether it's the same, they gave us our own personal mobile phone, please, mobile oh. phone. So you could give people your phone and your number and all this sort of thing. And at first I started to get snowed under with things, but then it was it was, it was was fantastic because – when I arrived in the department at Oxlow Slane, there was a, there was a lady called Helen Bryan, a PC, who developed such an amount of trust with the locals. And this this was a sink estate, by the way. This was her her beat area was was populated by people like Colin Gunn and people like that, the the criminal gangs. Yeah. And she would get a phone call on her phone saying the drugs are here now if you come now you'll catch them and i thought because that we'd then all run out the door jump into a van and, and do the job but i thought the amount of trust that that she's developed with oh, these yeah. people for them to give her this red hot information i thought that is that is absolutely brilliant policing that that is superb yeah. policing and and i, I just fear if we've lost that, if the community policing aspect has, has been lost due to everybody being so busy, um, because we, we were red circled for good 10 years uh, and we, we, we were preserved to do this job. And it was it, the results were amazing. Crime drops, AFB drops. And all this sort of thing, and the job satisfaction that you can get is, is amazing. And I absolutely agree because every crime is committed in a community. Whether the, it's a fraudster in Africa, it still starts in the community. Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. unless we've got people bringing in that information, yeah, crime is going to increase. And, and, yeah. we, and we need the community officers to do it, the home beats, whatever you want to call them, because the police service are losing so much information. And when an officer turns up on a response team, they turn up cold. They don't know the person they're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. where do we? You know, the people are the police, and the police are the people, and and that's how how it should be working. But but it's not working. It's very disjointed at the moment. I, I hope it goes yeah. back, and I hope that the community policing element, you know, even the CID work in the community. A murder takes place in the community. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when I when I joined in eighty four, it was the tail end of the sort of Sweeney type of policing, but even then. Um, my first sergeant, Dave Gresley, the ex-CRD chap, at 10 o'clock on 210, he'd say, get your coat, you're coming with me. And we'd go down the road to the Smith's Arms or the Radford Arms, two of the, the dirtiest, roughest pubs in, in, in the world, probably. And we'd be propping the bar up there till two in the morning. Yeah. And occasionally, somebody would shuffle up to Dave and, and say, Dave, I'll just want a quick word with you a minute. And he'd, he'd move away and he'd, he'd be nodding his head. And he, 
And I, I as, as naive as I still was, he was being given information. Yeah. And because we were drinking in that, the, obviously the bad thing about it, the unpolitically correct thing was we were in there till two in the morning and then we all drove home, of course. Yeah. Um, but obviously that can't happen now. No, quite no. right. Yeah, so, quite rightly so. Uh, but but the, the, the 4, 12 midnight uh, shift would come in and they'd join us and, and most of them in, still in uniform, you know, yeah. you'd, and, and then the night shift would come in, put their helmet on the bar and they'd be chatting to people as well. And there was the, the, the lowest echelons of society in that area were drinking with the police. Yeah. Giving information. That, that, yeah. Of course, that's frowned upon. Uh, but we even had at Radford Road a bar upstairs that the public could go in. Really? Uh, yeah. Beer was subsidised. We had do's and discos and things in there and the public could come in. And the public were in there, and it was pound a pint, and we we were we had we had the public in our bar, and they and this this is the roughest area of Nottingham, so the contact with the public was there, whether we were in their pubs or they were in our bar, but that's all gone. It has, and I don't know if you remember, but in '94 when they changed the the, the rules around housing allowance and what have you, they started certainly in Essex selling off the police houses. Well, that's another part of community policing yeah. that was lost because everybody knew where the police houses were in these these different estates. Some were problem estates, some were problem areas, but they had a visible presence, a cheap, yeah. a cheap visible presence as well. And yeah. and that's yeah, and that's what's lost, and that's a real shame. So you, you, you're the paradox between working in a hospital because obviously you've got a transient population and having a, a home beat community, there's quite a, a massive, although you've got the same people going into the hospital, but that's quite a responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. Um, obviously I was only there eight or nine hours a day, but they would wait if anything happened at weekends, unless it was urgent, they'd wait and ring me on a Monday morning or whatever I, when I was next on. Um, but the city hospital in Nottingham is, is I don't know if it's unique, I've never worked another one, but there were generations of the same family working there. Yeah. And um, they all lived local, virtually all of them lived locally. And um, when I first turned up there, there was a, there was a chap um, pinching from the hospital, dressing himself up as a builder or, or a doctor or whatever. And, and the, the security team said, oh, he's been on again, he's, he's pinched so-and-so. So, well, if you know it's him, why isn't anybody doing anything about it? And it's because of that transient nature of, of they'd ring the, the local, they'd ring 999 and the, the Panda card come take details. No fault of their own. They're, they're probably in another part of the city tomorrow. Yeah. Take details, brief description of the offender and gone. But it was clear where this fellow was going. He went under a hole in the fence at the back and he lived somewhere in a flat at the back of the hospital. And I found out his name and checked the records. And when I checked him out on PNC, he got 129 convictions already. And he was a, he was a class A drug user. So we had to fund his habit and he pinched handbags, wallets, mobile phones, computers, anything to get his hands on. And uh, I got a I got a team together and we got a search warrant for his address and found Nottingham City Hospital computers in his in his flat. Uh, and it's quite funny. This is where it's almost theatrical. This when I got him in 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 the interview room, he said, "I'm so pleased <laughs> you you've came to see me today, officer, because I found that computer yesterday on the grass. I had no idea what to do with it." Uh, but now you can take it from me. Thank you very much. And this is—he was really convincing. And um, uh, eventually, we got him. We got him convicted and moved off. But um, it was interesting dealing with him. But there were other things at the hospital that um, there were um, members of staff that were quite obviously pinching. But the problem—the problem with the hospital is—it's the doors are always open. Open, yeah, they are. And you can just walk in at any time of day or night into a hospital. And who's going to challenge you? You know, you're walking through a hospital, you might be visiting a relative who's yeah. dying. And so the, the, the porous nature of the security was, was a nightmare. Yeah. 
but um, I got I worked with the security team and we got cameras and all this sort of thing, and we 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 managed to keep the crime at manageable levels. You know, it is it's an interesting because what what you're demonstrating is that the police service is not one dimensional, and I think some people get this impression that it's all about enforcement, it's all about arresting people. But it's not because it's the communication skills, the decision-making, the customer focus. They're, yeah. they're the key areas, the ability to communicate. Yeah, yeah. Well, on the, on the uh, council estate, um, the, the, the biggest thing, the biggest job I was doing was just, um, was just giving people advice. Yeah. Um, you're not just there to um, sort out the bad people, but – but you're there to give advice as well and guidance because some people, it's, I don't think it's condescending to say that that some areas of, of our country in the inner cities perhaps need more um, guidance than others. And as we all know, ex-coppers, we, we all know that um, the book stops with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon, most most people go home. Most other professionals go home, which is fair enough. You know that's that's their remit. So we, we the police are there twenty four seven. We're we're free advice. We're free help. We're we're muscle if we're needed. We're we're, we're you know we're there to take the bad people away. But most of the time, I have to say, when I was walking around my beat area, it's it's a bit of advice and guidance as yeah. much as anything. Yeah, yeah. And if you take that away, if if all you can see of a police officer is somebody driving past at forty miles an hour, uh, there's so much lost. I mean, we keep going over this, but it's it's so true, you know. It, oh yeah. I, I hate to think what's happening now if if people are so short-staffed. Uh, none none of this quality policing is 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 going on, and it's no fault of the of the ladies and gents that are out there. No, I think the management have got a lot to answer for in some of these things. I mean, I, I've got a real view around standards mobile phones things like that and when i see officers driving along and the, the passenger they could be updating their work on their mobile yeah. device they could be but they're not looking out for the the stolen car that's in front of them or the yeah. or the yeah, fight yeah. that's taken yeah. or the drug deal they're missing so much because we've become so consumed in technology here we are talking to each other 200 miles away on a on a link but we've become so consumed with technology that the old-fashioned ability to communicate is actually lost. Yeah, I remember even now um, we could be driving along, and I could say to my wife, oh, "That that car in front looks a bit dodgy. Look, look at him. Look how he's driving that." And she'll say, "What? How do you know? How do you know? <laughs> You're not even in the job anymore." I know. Or, or, there's a car in front it starts to slow down and it's weaving around a little bit and the, the driver's head keeps going down he's obviously on his bloody phone yeah and, and my wife says how do you know how do you know <laughs> <laughs> so you, old, old habits yeah it does they do die hard though so you um you're an author now but you started writing for the police review if i've yeah. read that correctly yeah. how did you get uh, involved with that well i used to write so many uh angry letters to them. I used to email them probably once a week or, or more often. Dear sir, did you know that blah, 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 blah. And uh, eventually they emailed me back saying, um, do you want to write some of this down for us on a, on a regular basis? I said, yeah, sure, yeah. Um, so I was really chuffed. They offered me um, 500 words a month, 70 quid. Wow. 100 words. So I, I had to put in a business interest with the the professional standards. Obviously, they 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 let me have it, uh, and I cracked on. And uh, I did it for about eighteen months before, sadly, Police Review magazine folded. Um, I was going to say I didn't, I hadn't seen it, or, or, but yeah, is it? That's a real shame because that was a a lifeline for a lot of people. Yeah, it was, um, and I think without without any evidence to back this up, I think it was political rather than financial that they were they were subdued uh i don't think uh, mrs may liked them at all because we were we, it was our, it was the paper of our union if you like yeah it was yeah uh even though it was jane's uh, publication it was very critical of the home office um and i don't think that that was very popular with with uh, the government 
but yeah, so I, I wrote I wrote a few uh, uh, every month, some uh, five hundred words, and I, I, I remember writing once about this couple of blokes I met in a in my estate area, um, and they said to me, they happily said to me, we're getting between us more than a thousand quid a month in benefits, and they both they were both tow rags, and they both got form as long as you're on. And uh, one of them said, we don't even have to commit crime anymore and because uh, the benefits system was so generous. And uh, so I just I got back to tap, 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 <laughs> home, write, write my article, send it, sent it off. And it was, I didn't realise, again, so naive. How naive can you be? Um, the, the police review is syndicated to the, to the mirror, the sun. Oh. Uh, and and of course it, it it was it went in the sun and various things, and I had this email from some gaffer, please see me, you know like you do at school, <laughs> please see me, and uh, he just said, well think about what you're writing because it, it it's got consequences, and I said, well I didn't know they were going to do that, so well just think about consequences, and I don't know what he expected to do, I don't even know if it was a bollocking or not, but. You just said, "Think about yeah. what, what writing." But what I'd written was true, and it was it was of interest. Yeah. Um, so then I had to sort of self censor, and the, the articles had to be a little bit more sort of I don't know, boring, I suppose, um, because you can't in the public sector you can't be honest, can you? Because if you're no. very honest, it's going to get you in a lot of trouble. Yeah, you can't have an opinion, and you can't be honest. No. 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 It's a great shame. Did you serve with Mike Todd? Yes, yes. Um, I have a story about him. I was working uh, very late one night in the CID office at Radford Road, inputting uh, a computer system that was a dismal failure and costing millions. <laughs> uh, we were all working overtime to make this this damn thing work. And this bloke came and sat down next to me in a, in a suit Nice looking fellow, very smart. And he said, I didn't have no idea who he was. Uh, and uh, he said, Tell me, tell me, what is this this Chris system really like then? What, what's it like as a system? I said, Do you know what? If I can be honest, and I told him with a few expletives, it's absolute load of rubbish. Uh, look at this. And I was showing him and I was listening. And then uh, I realized he'd only just arrived and he was our new oh. deputy chief or assistant chief or something. I didn't get a I didn't get no. a telling off because it was an honest opinion yeah. and I didn't know who he was um but then sadly uh, in the end he he died on a mountainside somewhere didn't yeah, he? he did he uh, he's he's one of the nicest people that I ever had the pleasure of working with he, yeah. he yeah, was I, a governor at, at Chelmsford and he yeah. did he did a swap with a, a metropolitan police um, inspector called Trevor Hermes, who's another nice chap. But Mike Todd was just one of the nicest guys. And and when he took yeah. his own life, I mean, that's just that was absolutely terrible. But um, yeah, but well, yeah, yeah, he took a couple of people from Essex up there. Actually, Ray Berman was another one that um, transferred up up to uh, up to Nottingham. But um, did your did your writings get you into more trouble, or was it always uh, you started to consider your position then? No, it got me into more trouble because I then um, I was in the pub. I was talking about some of these uh, people I dealt with at the hospital, and they said somebody said, "Oh, you should write it down." So I, I wrote "Hospital Beat," uh, just a, uh, it's an anthology of, of what yeah. I did at the hospital, and uh, I published it as f- fiction, which it isn't. But it's, <laughs> no, but I understand. <laughs> I, I thought that would get me out of trouble, and. Uh, but that, that got me into trouble, uh, and I heard later, after retiring, that that certain people on command corridor wanted to sack me for it. Oh, really? Because, well, even though I'd, I'd got um, uh, a business interest to be a writer, um, they argued that um, that's that's for magazines. Writing a book is an author. It's a different word. I said, "You're joking." That's you. I, I got permission to be a, a writer, yes, but not books. Well, you never said not books. You, you never said don't write books. It just said you, you've got this permission to be a, a magazine writer. 
and uh, I, I just couldn't understand what the problem was. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. If you read Hospital Beat, it's it's a brilliant uh, example of working with with a security company, security team at the hospital, working the police and and partnership working together. It's it's a very positive book about policing, but they didn't like it. One of there were twelve points in it. I won't bore you, but one of them was uh, when I went to see one of the ward managers. Um, she reached up to get a file off a shelf and uh, I just made a mental note to myself that she'd got nice legs uh, and I made a mental note of that in my book. I didn't say it to her. I never I never oh. mentioned it out loud and I just put that in the book and they, they would, Knott's Police PSD, were disciplining me uh, for sexism. I said, well, I never said anything to anybody. Yes, but we don't want the public to think that male officers have such thoughts. I said, well, you're joking, aren't you? How can you, how can you? how can you police against thoughts? That's not the point. We don't want you writing it down that you do have no. these thoughts. I said, you're joking, aren't you? I can't believe this is happening. And they, they were deadly serious. They wanted to, they were disciplining me. I was interviewed for nearly two hours on tape by an investigator for writing this book. And I, I just I just couldn't believe what was happening. It was that and for a while they, they said you either you go or the book goes. Yeah. So they were, I had to take it off worldwide sale with Amazon. It took me altogether, it took me three months because Amazon had never had somebody contact them and say we've got to i've got to take this book off so it's got to go off in france italy germany spain brazil china america canada australia it's got to, i've got to make sure it's off sale all wow. over the world uh and eventually i did but then it's of course now um a couple of years later when i retired it's a great selling point because i yeah i felt i felt like some polish uh, poets that had been banned by the communist <laughs> government. The book was banned. <laughs> but it's back on the market now. Oh, yeah, 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 it's back on now. But it, It's it interesting because when we joined, I mean, this hop back to that, the girls used to get stockings allowance. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, and, you know, I get the misogyny bit, and but I just think sometimes things go a little bit too far. It's It makes me wonder how people form relationships if they can't have opinions. You know, no, or, or they can't no. find an attraction to somebody if they're not allowed to have that opinion. And I think, you know, sometimes in the police service, it's gone a little bit too far. Yeah, there were some things that, that happened were probably not right, but equally, it's just gone too far around around life and relationships in the police. But uh, So yeah. how many novels have you written? Um, I've only I've, I've written eight or nine books. Um, wow. Most of them are non-fiction. They're just about when I was travelling and in the police and so on. But a couple of years ago, I published uh, a nov- my first novel, which is uh, about uh, a pilot in uh, North Africa during World War Two, because I stumbled on this video on YouTube of this uh, P-40 Kitty Hawk crash landed in the Egyptian desert, 300 miles from anywhere. And I thought, well, what's what's the story behind that? And I managed to trace the chap's, uh, the dead pilot's um, uncle, not not uncle, nephew, great-nephew and nephew. And they filled me in on the, the personal side of what happened. Uh, and uh, I, I built a novel around it, did a lot of research on the, 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 the war in North Africa. And I published Kitty Hawk Down. I got a, stumbled on a, a great publisher who published it for me, which was nice. Uh, and I've just finished um, writing another book about a pilot, uh, and that was when I finished the book about the pilot, the RAF pilot in North Africa. I thought I'd like to write another book about a pilot, but what what would be a different thing to do? So I've written a book about a German pilot in Leningrad in 1943, which is <laughs> minus 45 degrees, um, fighting the Russians. Uh, and that's just going to print now. It should be out in May. And that's called Vermisst, which means missing in German. Uh, and the subtitle is Missing in Russia. I've added the missing in Russia bit since uh, Vladimir invaded, right. you know, because yep. of 
algorithms, you, you have something with Russia in the title, it's, it might pick up, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yesterday, I interviewed a guy called Mike Sutton. He's, he's an OBE, but he was the, um, let me get this right. Now, the wing commander at one squadron. Um, and he led the typhoon operations in Iraq and, and Syria. And his podcast will be released the week before yours, before this one. And, oh, right. And he's written a book called Typhoon. And, in fact, he's probably somebody you'd like to speak to because, he's a one, he's a thoroughly nice chap, but, two, wow. you, you've got an interesting aircraft. He is, he is your man. Um, yeah. Absolutely brilliant. 44 years old and, yeah, wow. absolutely superb. Um, so... How does what does life look like now for Jonathan Nicholas? Because you know you're prolific with your writings, but how how are you going to progress that, and what what are you looking to do for the future? Um, I don't know really. Writing is such a thing where you can just let it go wherever you want to take it. Um, I've got a couple of things on the go um, with a, a complete departure. I'm writing about the uh, our cats at the moment. I've got three cats, and I'm writing about how they've changed our lives in the last 12 years, um, which is which is really it's, – it's light and fluffy because the thing is when I wrote about um, this German chap in Russia, uh, I wrote that he was captured uh, and held in custody till 1950, which was quite common. And the way that the Russians treated them was, was dreadful. And I, I, the last 14 chapters were – like um, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, it was so incredibly bleak. And I, I got halfway through the, the, these chapters and I thought, my God, I'm, I'm back here. I sat in my little office over there and I'm, I'm in, and a lot of it I wrote last summer when it was 40 degrees outside and I'm trying to imagine it's minus 40 mm. degrees. And I thought, God, this is bleak. So I'm glad that's over. So my wife said, why don't you write something a bit lighter? So yeah, I'm writing about the cats. Brilliant. And I'm also writing a thriller, uh, I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, about somebody that uh, his hobby is following people on the motorway. Wow. Uh, so I don't know where that's going to go either, but that's that's just the, the beauty of writing, you know. I envy you because I've got loads of stories, but it's how do I? It's about committing them to... Uh, this is probably my way of writing, I don't know. Just write a page. You just write a page. My advice to anybody, and there's a lot of coppers. The thing is, as coppers, we used to write a lot. Lots, yeah. And you, you get a complex case, even a fairly complex case. You've got to write it all down into one one page synopsis. Yeah. That in itself is an art. Trying to, to trying to condense the whole thing. You might have multiple twerk offenders or, or shoplifters yep. and you, you've got to get it all into one page synopsis that is an art yeah and when people write books publishers say give me a synopsis and doing that is an art so if you want to write a book don't don't sit down at a computer or a, a notepad of blank pages and think oh god how do i start don't that's the completely the wrong approach just sit down Wherever you are, on a notepad while you're watching telly or listening to music or whatever, write a page, leave it, and when you feel the urge to do another one, write another page, write another page. If you do a page a day, that's 365 pages in a year. Yeah. You've got a book. You only need a minimum of, say, probably 50,000, 60,000 words. That's not a lot. That's that's not a huge amount. No, it's not. And and there's there's professionals out there that will copy edit it for you, and proofread it for you, and do the cover for you, uh, and just just get the bare bones down. Because one of the big um, pieces of advice for for writers is you can't edit a blank page. So just write something down, anything, even if it's rubbish, it doesn't matter, because next week you can come back to it. And and the, the clarity of, of the editing will be will be amazing. You'll be amazed that oh no, that's not right, and you change a bit here, change a bit there, and just just leave it. You leave it for a few months, or come back to it, whatever you know. So crack on, get 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 I'm writing. Gonna, I'm going to do it. I find that, and I might be knocking on your door for some advice. But, <laughs> um, but no, it's it, it, but it is it's great. And this is I, I said to you earlier on. What we're doing now is social history. This is the what did you do in the war 
scenario. Yeah. And yeah. and, and this will be kept forever and ever, amen, in some format. And, you know, in a hundred years' time, someone will say, Do you know what? This is what this is what these people did. Um before we go any further, is there anything you'd like to add or to correct? Change. What, from what I've said to you, I think yeah. I've, I've bored you enough, haven't I? Sure. No, far from it. I found it absolutely captivating, and 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 I'm really grateful for your time. It's uh, these things are time consuming, um, but I wish you every success in 2023. How do we get hold of you if if we if we want to look at your books? And I'll put all the links, everything in, into the format of this page. But if somebody wants to get hold of you to do a talk or whatever, how do I get hold of you? Well, my website is jonathannicholas.org.uk and I've got all my contact details on there. I'm on Twitter, jonathannickel4. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. LinkedIn's a good medium. I, I'm on LinkedIn mainly for all the other writers that are on there. Yeah. My website's uh, got all my contact details. Brilliant. And I'll put all of those links in here. Um Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. I'm very, very grateful. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I've been expecting you to ask me to find eight records that I couldn't live without. <laughs> this, this, is, this is our version of Desert Island Disc, which I absolutely adore. So, um, no. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. No, no problem at all. Any time at all, if you if you if somebody gives you a cancellation, I can come and babble on any time you want me to. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Thanks ever so much. Okay, take care. Take care, mate. Thank you. Bye-bye.